If you have a Bible with you, if you would mind to grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you're able and can stand with me, I would love for you to stand as we read God's holy word together, um, starting in verse 26 down through the end of this chapter. I appreciated last week when we um, did this at Hicksville, people popped out of their seat when we said, let's stand to read God's word. And uh, I appreciate that when you stand with me uh, to read God's word this morning. I'm going to start reading in verse 26 down through the end of this chapter. Paul writes this. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray again. Father, we sang the song and now we say the words, Speak to us, O Lord, through your word. Let us understand. Help us to understand the the heights of, of your love, the depths of your instruction and your peace and your comfort to us. And help us as we finish out this chapter to think highly of your word and what it would call us to. And I pray that we would be obedient and that we would be submissive to what your word has to say here. I ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated again this morning. Well, we've reached the end of chapter 14. We're making progress through this book of 1 Corinthians. We only have a couple more chapters to go. Um, It looks like maybe around summer, early fall, we should be done somewhere in there uh, with the book of 1 Corinthians. But we're excited as we go through this. This section this morning really finishes what began all the way back in chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul began to address in this church some ill practices that were taking place. And if you recall from back there, um, in, in chapter 11, Paul begins talking about proper decorum, what, what they're wearing, how they should uh, respect the, 
the culture, the, the way uh, their society would view men and women when they come in to worship. And he talked about that extensively. And then later on in the chapter, he talked about their Lord's Supper, communion. And we're going to share in communion later this morning. And Paul talked about that because they were being very rude to one another, not waiting for each other, kind of racing ahead, not waiting for the poor to get there. And they were overindulging in the wine that they used. It was quite an ugly scene. It was in chapter 11. Then in chapters 12, 13, and now in finishing chapter 14, Paul takes three chapters to address this idea of spiritual gifts. As you know, the, the Corinthians were a very proud people. They loved their spiritual gifts. They, they overindulged, especially in the gifts of tongues and prophecy. That was kind of the, the, the big two, if, if it were, to them. And so they really liked those. And Paul is admonishing them for three chapters saying, look, spiritual gifts are meant for the common good. If you're given a gift, it's meant to build others up. It's never meant to be an idea of a showmanship or of a one-upsmanship to somebody else. It's meant to be for the common good. And so Paul goes into chapter 13 and he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. And that way is love. And he says, in all of the gifts that you use, be it tongues, be it prophecy, Uh, be it hospitality, whatever it is, it must be exercised in love because you can do wonderful things. But if there is no love, then Paul says you are nothing when it comes to edifying the rest of the body. So Paul is very adamant about them using love because they were the exact opposite of that in this church. They were very unloving. And so you get into chapter 13 and Paul then reminds them toward the end of the chapter Corinthians, these two gifts that you really love, tongues and prophecy, they're going to pass away. They're going to cease. They're going to be no more. And so you need to stick with the big one, that's love, because these other things are temporal. They're only uh, for your time now, but eventually they'll be gone. So Paul has made the case throughout this chapter that when people speak in tongues and it's left uninterpreted, that it really benefits no one. And he answers the question, well, why doesn't that benefit anyone? Because it never informs the mind. Um, I was down in um, Washington on Thursday for the National Day of Prayer. Uh, there on the courthouse steps. It was, it was a wonderful uh, time while we were there. They had two uh, people pray, and they prayed in foreign languages. One was a Burmese gentleman, and one was a Spanish-speaking lady. And uh, the Burmese gentleman, uh, wonderful, wonderful, I I guess. It was was wonderful to hear him pray, um, but there was no translation. So while it was neat to hear him, and he was very expressive and very heartfelt, I don't know exactly what he said. I am assuming he was, you know, an evangelical prayer. The lady that spoke after him, the Spanish-speaking lady, had an interpreter with her. And so she would say a sentence or two, and the interpreter would say a sentence or two. And I thought about what we've been studying, and I thought, you know, both of those prayers were wonderful, but only one of them informed my mind. Only one of them I could uh, worship along with her, because I knew what she was saying in one sense. So I think that was what Paul was getting at. Tongues left uninterpreted, while, while they're fine, they may be wonderful prayers. In a corporate setting, 
They don't edify because they don't inform the mind. They're, they're not intelligible. So Paul has made this case that prophecy then is far more effective because prophecy, at least in, in Paul's time, was in the vernacular. It was in their, their, the Greek language. They could understand it. They all knew what the prophet was saying. So Paul makes this case uh, for prophecy being superior to tongues throughout this chapter of 14. So what Paul is going to do now at the end of this chapter is he's going to lay out some very practical, very simple steps for their use of tongues and their use of prophecy in a corporate setting. I want to remind you um, that based on the end of chapter 13, um, I do hold to the position uh, that these two particular gifts that Paul is addressing, tongues and prophecy, ceased to function when the canon, the canon of Scripture was written and closed and when the early church had begun to mature. So, um, but I say that only to say this. I think it's noteworthy that even if you don't hold to that position, let's say you hold to a different position and you say, no, these gifts are operable today. Uh, particularly the gift of tongues, for example. Uh, you say, no, I, I think that the gift of tongues is in operation today. Then I think this, much of what we see in the modern charismatic and Pentecostal circles would be totally discredited as illegitimate because often they completely ignore the controlling commands that we're getting ready to look at here. In the, at the end of this chapter. So I want us to pay special attention to these because even in rural southern Indiana, um, abuses uh, to this text exist. So I want us to understand it, not so that we can wag the finger, that's not what we're, what we're doing, but so that we have a grasp of, okay, here's what scripture would say how this is supposed to work. And so if I'm in a setting where it's very confusing and I don't understand it, maybe I understand why I'm confused or why I'm not getting this. So Paul lays this out then in four parts. And you have this in your message notes. There's four parts of four, four instructions that he's going to give here. He's going to give some instructions to the tongue speakers in the church. He's going to give some instructions to the prophets uh, then later he brings in some instructions specifically to the women in this church. And then finally he concludes it with instructions for everybody, kind of this inclusive general instruction, again, kind of summing up, if you will, everything that he's tried to talk about in these last three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. So let's begin with verse 26 and look at uh, Paul's instruction uh, to this church. What then, brothers, he says. And, and really, we could add in there, uh, the sense of this is, what are the results then, brothers? Look what's happening in your church, okay? He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Now, I want to draw this picture, if you will, of what Paul is seeing as he looks through the doors of this church. Number one, he says... Some of you are coming in and you have a hymn. A hymn is, of course, a song, most likely 
it would have been them singing the psalms or the psalter that we have in our book, the 150 psalms. They were either singing those psalms or they may have been writing their own songs. Um, but the word hymn there, the, the, the underlying word there implies that there's musical accompaniment. So there's a group of people that are coming to church and in their mind, we need to sing. And they have songs ready and they have their musical instruments ready, maybe their harps or their flutes or whatever they were bringing in. There was another group of people coming in, Paul says, and and you all have lessons. You guys are the doctrinal people. You are the ones that are gifted with the gifts of teaching or wisdom or, or knowledge. And you're coming in and you're excited about the truths of God and you, you want to teach the truths of God. That's the second group. Paul says there's more of you come in and, and you have a revelation. That means you're a prophet. You have been given a word from God that you now want to impart to the others, that you want to share to the rest of the church. A prophecy. It's a third group. And then, of course, there were the ones that were coming in, as we've been talking about for a while now, speaking in tongues. And just as a reminder, uh, tongues were actual languages, foreign languages, previously unknown to the one that was speaking, but God had gifted that person to speak for the benefit of foreigners who might be in the room. Now, to, to benefit the rest of the congregation then, and actually to the one speaking, God gave the gift of interpretation. So there would be those there that would be interpreting so that the rest of the congregation could benefit, be edified by the ones speaking in tongues. Okay, so put this all together in your mind, this picture. Let's suppose you are an unbeliever and you've decided today I'm going to go worship at this church that's here in Corinth. You walk through the doors, uh, you're a bit timid, you're not sure exactly what to expect, you don't know a lot of people, you kind of find a seat, and all of a sudden, things begin to happen. <laughs> Over here in this corner, you have the singers, and they've all arrived, and they all have their musical instruments, and so they're starting to get things going with the music, okay? Uh, they, maybe they're, they're getting kind of loud, they're, they're raising their hands, they're getting really excited about the music. Over here in this corner, uh, you have the serious people uh, frowning over there on maybe on those that are trying to sing because they're trying to teach their lessons over here. They're trying to impose doctrinal truth on the people. Maybe they're trying to talk a little bit louder because the music is a little louder. Maybe they sing and then they try to quiet them down so they can teach. It's getting a little weird in here. Then here come the prophets. They start standing up and saying, I, I have a word, and, and they give a word, and another guy interrupts, I've got a word, and, and he gives a word, and they're kind of talking over one another, and then the tongue speakers start, because maybe there's a foreigner in the room, and the tongue speakers are starting to speak in tongues, and, and then all the interpreters are coming along, and they're trying to interpret, and as you can imagine, after a few minutes of this, it could have become absolute pandemonium in that room. I think that's why Paul says when unbelievers walk in and they witness this back earlier in this chapter, he says, what is their conclusion? You guys are out of your minds. You guys are crazy. This is madness. And they walk out of the room, 
out of the church building, never to return. And Paul says, that is the great disappointment in what's going on in your church because the very people you're supposed to be ministering to are the ones that are looking in the doors and saying, this place is full of nuts. And they're, and they're walking back out. And at the root of the problem, the Corinthians were far more interested in their reputation than they were the salvation of people coming into their midst. It was a very proud and chaotic scene. And so Paul, very gently, at the end of verse 26 says, Remember, all things are to be done for building up. I don't like this scene, Paul says, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing about your church. And so I'm going to give you some steps now so that it is profitable when you all gather together, when you have your corporate worship services. So he starts into this tongue speakers in verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, there should only be two or at most three, each in turn and let someone interpret. And if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself or to God. Very simple, very straightforward instructions. Four things here that Paul says to the tongue speakers. Four commands that they should follow in order for their gift to be of most use in this congregation. Number one, he says, only two or three of you, that's it, speak in tongues. Two, great, three, that's it. No more than three. Why? Well, as you know, and as, as I just related to you a short instance the other day, if someone is speaking in a tongue, it's fine. But you kind of sit there and it's, it's, it takes a very long time to work through that. Even the gal that had the interpretation, uh, not nearly as much could be said because everything had to be said twice, once in one language and once then in the common language. So Paul's saying, it's fine if you have two or three people speaking in tongues, but I want you to limit it at that. Otherwise, you could go all day and you could have someone speaking in tongues and someone interpreting, someone speaking in tongues, someone interpreting. And after a while, it just becomes hard uh, to, to pay attention and to listen to that. So Paul says, two or three, that's it. Cut it off at that. And secondly, Paul says, each of you speak in turn. I don't want, Paul says, all of you rattling off in your tongues at the same time. I want you to take turns. So one person speak in a tongue and then someone interpret and then the next one can go and then finally the third one but don't all join in at once speaking in tongues or joining together speaking in tongues and all try to interpret at the same time that becomes chaotic that becomes confusing it, it's hard to, to follow that now implied by the way in that command is this the gift of tongues then is a controllable gift. From time to time, you'll hear people say something like, well, it just came on me. I mean, I just, I was praying and all of a sudden it just came out. I just, I just couldn't stop it. The, the spirit just, just let it go. Well, if Paul here says, take turns, each one of you, one by one, then implied in that is you have control over that gift. If you are claiming that the Spirit just came on you and you just couldn't help it, it just came out, then you need to examine by what Spirit that's occurring because it's not the Holy Spirit. 
Because if the Holy Spirit said, take turns one by one, he wouldn't contradict himself by just coming upon a person and forcing them to speak in tongues all together at the same time. So each one of you take turns, Paul says. Control it, because that's what's going to edify the body as it's being interpreted to the rest of the body. And then number three, make sure somebody's interpreting, right? Make sure somebody is translating those words that you're speaking into the vernacular. Why? Because this is a corporate worship service. And the word corporate means we're all in this together. And so if we're all in this together and we're all supposed to benefit, Paul says, then make sure that someone is there to interpret so that everyone knows what's being said by the voice of the tongue speaker. Let somebody interpret. And then finally, number four is an obvious one. If there's no interpreter in the house, then what? Be quiet. Be quiet. Just sit and meditate. Which, by the way, this would also imply that the gift of tongues is controllable. Because if I was getting ready to speak in the gift of tongues, I would need to pause and look to see if there was someone that I knew of that had the gift of interpretation. Or I would need to ask God for the gift of interpretation. Earlier in the chapter, that Paul says, you can have both. If you ask for it, God may grant you both. But if I don't see anyone with that gift of interpretation, then Paul's command is this. Be quiet. Be quiet. You can go online. I don't encourage you to do this, but you can go online sometimes and you can watch services where the gift of tongues is practiced And most often, uh, at least that I've seen, it's somewhat of a free-for-all. People are speaking in tongues kind of all over the place. Uh, No one is interpreting, at least not that I've ever seen. And uh, it's, it's just chaotic. That's the opposite of what Paul wants. It's a violation of what Paul's commanding. That's to the tongue speakers. Now, Paul turns to the prophets. Very similar instructions. Four instructions again to the prophets. Look what he says. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Four things Paul is wrapping in here to his instruction to the prophets. Number one, only two or three prophets. That's it. Two or three prophecies. Why? Because again, the service could go on endlessly. And it wasn't that Paul was opposed to long services. If you remember, he was the one that put the kid to sleep in the windowsill and he fell out at midnight and died. And Paul resurrected him and kept on preaching. Uh, Paul was not opposed to long services, but he says after a while, if there are two or three prophets, that is enough revelation to be absorbed. I don't want you to keep going on endlessly and endlessly and endlessly. Cut it off somewhere. So he says two or three prophets. And then when a prophet speaks, very important When a prophet speaks, Paul says, let the others weigh what he said. Let the others consider what he said. Now, there's something you need to know about New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets spoke in two ways. 
Number one, we could call revelation, and that was they received a word from God, and then they would speak it for the benefit of the church, for the life of the church. They would give this instruction. That was revelation, new knowledge imparted to the church. The other way that prophets could speak is what we could call reiteration, and that is they could take a a prophecy that had already been given or a truth that was already known to the church, and they could reiterate it. They could remind the congregation, or they could preach again the truths of what was spoken before so that the church would be encouraged and that they would be uplifted. And there's a sense in which I, as a pastor, do that. That, I I just reiterate the truth that's already been given to us, and I, I teach it as a reminder for us to understand. That's reiteration. So not everything that a prophet said was necessarily new. But when a New Testament prophet spoke, he did not speak with unquestionable divine authority. When you look at the Old Testament prophets, they would. They would say, thus saith the Lord, and they would speak, and they would speak with divine authority. But when you get to the New Testament, Paul says New Testament prophecies and this gift of prophecy that the Corinthian church was experiencing, he said it is subject to and it invites appraisal, discussion. You need to weigh what was said. So if a prophet stood up in the church and said, I have a revelation from the Lord, he would give that. And then the other prophets in the church and the church body as a whole would weigh that to say, Is that accurate or is it not? Now, the question that you have to ask is, what was it weighed against? How would you know if it's accurate or if it's not? Well, they would weigh it against the scriptures that they already had. They would weigh it against the Old Testament law that they had. They would weigh it against what the apostles had already taught them and they had accepted as truth from God. They would weigh what this prophet was saying against what was already known And if it lined up, if it corresponded with the truth as they had been taught, then it was accepted. And if it didn't, they would simply say, that's that's obviously not from the Lord. It it has contradicted something that that we've been taught before. And so they were to weigh this. That was the, the gift of prophecy, to give it, and then for others to be able to weigh this. I think Paul's intention was this. It was to bring the prophets down a notch, if you will, to the level of the community so that the prophets wouldn't have this idea that I stand above everyone else, that God speaks only to me and not to everybody else. No, the Spirit indwells all the believers. And so as the prophet speaks, then they weigh that to make sure that it's, it's accurate, that it's, it's truthful. Again, I think this is important for those who would hold that prophecy uh, continues today. I I think that um, same concept. If someone comes and says, um, thus saith the Lord, then what is being said needs to be weighed against Scripture. From time to time, someone will come to me and they will say, the Lord told me to tell you this, or the Lord said this. And as soon as they say that, my antennas go up. Because what I want to say right at the end, because they're, they're getting ready to um, go into that prophetic tone of voice and tell me what the Lord said. I want to just say, stop, stop, just stop for a second. 
whatever you're getting ready to say, whatever's coming out of your mouth, must line up with the scriptures I hold in my hand. Because if they don't, Paul's instruction for me is to reject the utterance you're getting ready to say. Now, go on. (laughs) Now, when people do that, sometimes I call it playing the God told me trump card. (laughs) Because sometimes when people say, well, God told me, well, how can you question that? I mean, how can you say, no, God didn't tell you that? Because it sounds so rude. Yeah, God told me that. No, he didn't. Yes, he didn't. I mean, we got to be able to weigh it against something. So Paul says, you weigh it against Scripture, against truth that's already revealed. So when the prophet says, here's what the Lord told me, immediately that church, and we, if, we, if someone tells us that, we can open our word. Okay, we'll make sure it lines up with what's here. Make sure that the prophecy is accurate. That was the second command to the prophets. Weigh it. Third command was this. If one prophet is speaking and another prophet receives a revelation, the first guy is to yield his time, sit down, and let the next one go. Now, why would he do that? Well, one, you could... We call it preventing a filibuster, right? One, one prophet could just keep talking, talking, talking. No one could ever stop him. But secondly, it could be this. If someone is sitting, if a prophet is sitting in the service and he receives a revelation from the Lord while he's sitting there, then the chances are that that is something new or very important that God would have for that church at that time. So the first prophet needs to finish up what he's doing yield his time so that this prophet with the new revelation or the the new word from the Lord could stand up and share. It was a way to keep people from being mic hogs, microphone hogs, okay? It was a way to make sure that the service progressed and that what God was wanting to teach the congregation would take place. And number four, to, to the prophets, take turns, take turns. He says, you go one by one. Again, if you can go one by one, that implies what? You have control over the gift of prophecy. That's what Paul says. Look at verse 32. The spirits of prophets, that is the spiritual gifts, it's the same word, the spiritual gifts of prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, the prophet can wait graciously for the first guy to get done before he begins giving his prophecy. No one can ever say, well, the Lord just told me to say this, and so I stood up and I just blurted it out. No. Paul says, you, you do it in order. You, you do it with no confusion, no chaos. You, you take turns. That's what Paul says. The Holy Spirit never operates in an out-of-control, bizarre, wild, ecstatic frantic, trance-like manner. If, if that is occurring, uh, chances are people are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit because that's not how he operates. Don't be duped into thinking that some experience was super spiritual because everybody was just going wild all at the same time. Speaking in tongues and prophecy and singing and clapping their hands... Um, Paul says that atmosphere does not reflect the character of the God that you're worshiping. Look at verse 33. 
God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Paul says, you don't worship a God of chaos. You don't worship a God who's out of control. You don't worship a God who's frantic and wild and sort of unpredictable and bizarre in in the way he works. No, you worship a God of peace. You worship a God who desires to be understood. You worship a God who speaks intelligibly to you, who is meticulous about how he speaks to you so that you may know him. It's not a God who acts and performs in ways that you don't understand. Listen, friends, from the beginning of time, God plotted out a course and he said, here's what it's going to look like as I send my son into the world to redeem it. And God coordinated that. God planned all that. It wasn't a fly by the seat of my pants, a shoot from the hip kind of mentality. God was very meticulous in how he laid out his son's plans for coming to the earth. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God made the first pronouncement of the gospel that Jesus would come. He would crush the head of Satan. And in due time, God would send Jesus into the world as a baby. It was the promised Messiah that was promised from all of the Old Testament prophets. God said, he's going to come. Here's what it's going to look like. It's going to be in Bethlehem. By his stripes, you're going to be healed. He's, He's giving all these predictions. And at just the right time, Jesus comes into the earth and he lives as his perfect man and he dies on the cross and God arranged all of it so that Jesus would be crucified during the Passover feast. God is a God of organization. God is a God of precision planning, predicting everything in the Old Testament so that when Jesus rose again in three days, God could say, here's the plan I laid out. And now, if you will believe on my son, Jesus Christ, if you will confess him as Lord, if you believe that I raised him from the dead, I will give you the greatest peace possible. Paul says, this is the God you're worshiping. It's the God of peace. It's the God of organization. It's the God of planning. It's not the God of chaos. And I want your worship services to reflect the God that you worship. Because when people come into your worship services, what they see here in the pews is what they're going to think of their God above. Same thing for us today. If somebody comes into our worship service and they see nobody singing, a lot of boredom, a lot of sleeping, what are they going to think of your God? Not really worthy to be praised, kind of boring. Same thing, right? God says, Paul says, your corporate worship service is a reflection of the character of of the God that you worship. Paul follows this up with some instructions to the women in this congregation. He says in verse 33, at the end of that verse, it says, in all the churches of the saints, 
the women should keep silent in these churches for they're not permitted to speak but they should be in submission as the law also says if there's anything they desire to learn let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church now I want you to note the context in which this instruction is given Paul has just right above this talked about the gift of prophecy and about weighing in on the gift of prophecy when a prophet speaks the church and the other prophets in particular were to take that prophecy and weigh it against scripture. They would say then to the rest of the church, this is valid, this is a good instruction, this is a word from the Lord, this is what God is teaching us through this prophecy. And then they would go on and teach. Or they would say, that doesn't really line up with scripture. Here's what scripture says. And they would teach that and they would say, so... We have to reject that prophecy. That, that one didn't come from the Lord. Uh, so that was, that's the context in which Paul is writing here. So when Paul says women should keep silent in the churches, I don't think that it is an absolute prohibition for women to ever say anything in the church service. And here's why. Back earlier in, in chapter 11 in verse 5, Paul specifically talked about wives and women who prayed and prophesied in church. Um, they prophesied, uh, pray and prophesied, and he talked about the proper decorum when they did that. So I don't think Paul had in mind here an absolute silence that women can never say anything. I think what Paul had in mind here was this context of weighing in on what other prophets were saying and using that then to piggyback on and, and to begin teaching the congregation. Paul is aware that in a corporate worship service, there is always a mix of men and women. So to take a prophecy, to evaluate a prophecy, to weigh in on that, and then to use that to launch into a teaching mechanism or a teaching tool would have then been to teach both the men and the women in the congregation. And Paul is very firm about uh, men taking the leadership roles in teaching capacities in a church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he specifically says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And in that verse, Paul points all the way back to creation. This is back to pre-fall days. This is back before the serpent tempted. And he said, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam is meant to be the leader. It was his role as the husband to teach. And Eve was to be his helper. It was her role as the wife to come along and to help Adam. It wasn't that she was inferior. It wasn't that she was being oppressed. It, it was God's design that Adam would be the leader of his home, he would be the teacher, and that Eve would come along and she would be his helper. But you know, when Genesis 3 comes along, it all gets distorted. It all gets messed up. And in Genesis chapter 3, in the curse, God says this, the man is now going to try to rule over you. And at that point, then he does become oppressive. And the woman is going to try to take over the position of her husband. She's going to try to uh, rule over him and, and take that over. 
And so Paul says, I tell you all this to say, in the original design, it's not how God wanted it to be. He wanted men to be the leaders and men to be the head of the church and men to be the head of their homes and wives to come along in submission. So here's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. In these corporate worship settings, I don't want the women coming along and evaluating or correcting what the men are saying because in that sense, they are then teaching and exercising authority over both the men and the women who are in that congregation. Now, does that mean the women were dumb? Of course not. Does that mean that women weren't somehow smart enough to know scripture and come to accurate conclusions? Of course not. Women were very intelligent. They're incredibly smart. I should know. I I married one who's smarter than me. Women are, are very intelligent. Paul didn't write this to demean women. He wrote this because he said, proper form in corporate worship would be for the men to take the leadership role and to teach and for women to come in submission. What if the prophet who stood up was this woman's husband and he gave a bad prophecy? And she would then stand up and say, that's a bad prophecy, you need to ignore that. That was not a word from the Lord. That would be an embarrassment and disrespectful. Even in our culture today, we have this unspoken uh, rule that you don't demean your spouse in public settings, right? I mean, you shouldn't do it anytime, but certainly not in public settings. Uh, Call somebody dumb or, or put them down. That's just taboo. And Paul says, this is the same in a corporate worship setting. I don't want the women to be um, sitting in judgment over uh, the men. If you have questions, Paul says, I want you to go home and ask at home. Ask your husbands when you get home. Now, guys, I've got to tell you something. This puts a big responsibility on us, doesn't it? Because if our wives are supposed to come to us with their questions, then what are we supposed to do? <laughs> We're supposed to give them answers, right? We're supposed to come up with the answers. I am incredibly disappointed when I encounter husbands and wives where the wives are leaps and bounds ahead of the husbands in spiritual maturity because the husbands are nothing but lazy. Guys, if your wife asks you a question, you need to find the answer. You need to be able to know. It's okay if she's ahead of you spiritually, but you need to put in the effort to catch up. You need to work hard at that. Because God is calling you to lead. God is calling you to teach. So I think it begins with us in our homes. And then Paul says that's what flows out then in this corporate worship setting. Lastly, and we'll, we'll finish up with this one uh, somewhat quickly. Uh, this is uh, Paul's then general instructions to the, to the rest of the church, to the whole of the church in, in verse 36. Paul's saying, was it... From you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized. So, my brothers, 
earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Very simply, Paul's saying, Corinthians, do you think that the word of God came to you first? The implied answer is no, it didn't. There were other apostles that have come before you, and Paul says, primarily me. I have taught you already. There have been other people that have come ahead of you. So if you think that you have the gift of prophecy, then weigh in on what I'm telling you, because what I'm telling you are the commands of God. And if you reject me, Paul's saying, then you will be rejected because I am giving you truth in prophecy. This is one of the rare times in Scripture when Paul seems to have this conscious awareness that he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, I am writing to you exactly what the Spirit is telling me to write. And if you don't accept this, then you as a prophet are rejected because you can't properly weigh my words against truth. I'm telling you truth. So Corinthians, you need to listen and you need to obey what I'm telling you. That's what he's instructing this church. We're bound by the word of God. We go through life in submission to this thing called the word of God. And that's Paul's emphasis to these Corinthians. So here's the takeaway that we can get from this passage. There's a lot of them, but here's at least one of them. There is a need for us today. There is a need for us, for God's people, to submit to a recognized, objective, external authority. And that authority is the Word of God. There is often, unfortunately, a misconception among believers that the things they supposedly receive from the Spirit, things like dreams or thoughts or impressions or revelations, there's a misconception that those are independent of any authority. In fact, there's often this real indignation that occurs if you even suggest to someone that their dream or their impression should come under the scrutiny of God's word or should come under the scrutiny of other believers. It's almost like if I tell you that the Spirit told me this, that is not subject to any other authority. And Paul would say it is. It's subject to the word of God. It's subject to the scrutiny of other Spirit-filled believers to say, I hear what you say, and let me weigh that now against what Scripture has already said. And Scripture is closed. The canon has been completed. We have Genesis to Revelation. We have everything that we need to know contained in the word of God. So we obey this. And I have a hard enough time Understanding and obeying everything that's already written, that if you come and you have this new revelation or new spirit spoken word, I'm going to have to weigh it against Scripture because this is the only valid standard I have to know if what you're telling me is right or wrong. So here's my challenge to you guys today. Instead of seeking extra-biblical revelation. Instead of always yearning for 
some new thought directly from God. If God says, I have given you my word, my holy word, and I've given you everything you need here to know me, I've given you everything you need here to obey me, I've given you everything here to weigh life against and measure it, then I want you to be spending your time here because this is how you're going to know me. This is how you're going to become acquainted with me. This is how you're going to love me more. This is how you're going to worship me more. I am the creator of the universe. I am the author of peace, and I've written it down for you. I have planned from eternity past how my son would come into this world and it's all contained right here so that you can read it and you can study it and you can rejoice in the word of God, the living, sharp, two-edged sword that you have in your hands. And so here's what I think. Our love of God in many ways will be reflected by how we value and long for God's word. Our love for God will be reflected in how we value and long for God's word. So are you reading it? Are you studying it? Do you know God through his word? Are you soaking it up? Here's what the psalmist said back in Psalm 19. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold, sweeter also than honey. And drippings from the honeycomb. That's how the psalmist valued the word of God because in it was the description and what gave him the joy of knowing the author of the word that he held. So I challenge you, spend time in it. Don't fall into the trap of the Corinthians. Always looking for something more. Always looking for something experiential and, and wild. You have it here. And God says, It's peaceful, and it'll bring you tremendous joy in your life. Let me pray for us. God, there is nothing greater in all the world than to know you. Father, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died on our behalf and rose again so that we can believe in him and be indwelled by your spirit have the power to walk as he walked the power to walk in holiness and in peace and in orderly conduct and father not to have corporate worship services that are frantic and out of control but god that we can come together and we can study together and know you and be blessed through the study of your word we love you we thank you for preserving it for all of this time for never giving us uh, more than we could handle, but with every uh, instance of, of uh, trial that you bring into our life, every instance of joy you bring into our life, you tell us that your word is sufficient 
to give us direction. So I pray that we would spend much time in your word. And I pray as a congregation that our love for you would have a direct correlation to the amount of time we want to spend hearing what you have to say. We pray with you and we pray to you and then we listen to you through your word. So Father, help us to be empowered by it, to treasure it, to commit it to memory, and then to use it to change us, to help us to be more like your son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I mentioned, we're going to participate in communion this morning. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you've confessed him as Lord of your life, then you're welcome to participate with us. Uh, We say it's an open communion. Any believer of Jesus Christ can participate in our communion service this morning. In Matthew chapter 26, um, Matthew records these words. He says, while they were eating, this is the, the night before Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Paul adds to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this morning, if you come to the communion table and participate in this ordinance, then you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming a past event that has given us eternal life and as we wait now for our Savior to return. Return in the clouds the same way he left some 2,000 years ago. So we proclaim that the Lord is sufficient to forgive sin. We proclaim that he was sufficient in propitiating or satisfying the wrath of God, that Jesus was the authority over death and darkness, that Jesus' perfect work of grace in in his elect is, is continuing today as he transforms us in that we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and we live under his sufficiency, under his satisfaction, under his authority in our lives. So if you don't identify with Jesus Christ or you don't live in submission to the commands of Christ, uh, Paul says, don't participate in communion. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats this bread or or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is, um, doesn't give consideration to what the ordinance represents, doesn't really live for the Lord or doesn't really care uh, about the things of the Lord. He'll be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. It's a very serious charge. He says a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we're going to take just a moment and ask you to examine your own conscience and say, do I love the Lord? Do I have a desire for the things of the Lord? Um, I'm not perfect, I understand that. But the known sins in my life, have I confessed those? Am I ready to come to this communion table um, and enjoy participating with the Lord. So let's pause for just a moment and give ourselves some time to examine our conscience.
Father God, thank you for this time that we could spend here this morning. And thank you for this gift of communion, this ordinance that you've laid out in Scripture and you've asked us to follow. You've told us that when we do this, we remember you. Remember your son. Great sacrifice. Father, it's a joy to participate in communion because it it reminds us the great cost that was paid by you that was given so freely to us. So we serve you with with a love that knows no equal, a different kind of love than we could ever experience from a human or a pet, any other kind of love. Father, you are uh, the author of agape love. So we love you back. And this morning as we participate, we do so with a clean conscience, recognizing that you indeed have sent your son, Jesus Christ, and he will return again. And so we, rem- we remember him this morning. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.